Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Alex Wilkes, and today I'm very happy to be joined for our very first episode by Matt Hawkins. Matt is the co-founder and co-director of Compassion in Politics, an organisation which seeks to inject compassionate principles into every part of the political debate and decision-making. As well as this, Matt has been the communications director of the Green Party, managed the Equal Civil Partnerships campaign, which successfully introduced civil partnerships for mixed-sex couples in the UK, and was part of the Nobel Prize winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. So Matt, welcome to the show. Um, I guess the first and most obvious question is, where do you keep your Nobel Prize? (laughs) Unfortunately, you have to share it. Um, So you do, there's, there's only a certain number given out. And I wasn't one of the people who got given the actual medallion. So although I've, I've had the privilege to hold it, um, and, and have quite a few brilliant parties in the honour of having been sort of past the team that won it. I don't have it on me, uh, but so it's being looked do you, after. Do you, not, do you not have a sharing setup where you perhaps get to keep it one weekend a year and take it to the zoo and go for Mackey D's and ice cream We afterwards? would do that if, uh, if, if, it was an, if it weren't an international campaign. It might just <laughs> be tricky with the, you know getting it across the border. Um, there is someone in England who's definitely got hold of a copy so I, I, I might have to track them down there's photos on the internet them. i mean you could just look longingly at those i guess and remember <laughs> successes of the maybe past. someone out there could send me you know a model of it that would that would also be fine fantastic did you have to go to oslo to collect it we did it was an it was an amazing experience actually so obviously for the ceremony they can only have a certain number of people in so they set up a big uh they rent out a room basically where everyone else can kind of go and watch it and then after that you all feel really happy obviously freezing cold because it's in norway in in the winter but then you all just go off and and have an amazing party it was yeah brilliant brilliant experience and um a privilege to have been part of that team of course and now you've won the the peace prize are there any other sort of nobel prizes on the list (laughs) i think anyone who taught me gcse chemistry would 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 automatically rule that one out um (laughs) i know you have at least five books as literature on the cut so i'm gonna go for that one yeah, it's literature, chemistry, physics, and then I think the last one is like physiology and medicine. So they, okay. I, either they hadn't invented the word biology back then, or they're a bit <laughs> they were hedging their bets. Species just about it and decided they had to they had to pick one which <laughs> explicitly ruled out anything that wasn't human. From I biology. think you know what I think I've never studied physiology or medicine, but I think I have a better chance of winning that than physics or chemistry. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, put your money on that now. 2021 goals. That's the one. Fantastic. Look, the first thing I wanted to talk about was obviously compassion in politics, which I believe you set up about two years ago, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Um, so I just wanted to know what was, um, what problem were you trying to solve? Was it something that nobody else was doing, or is it something that other campaigns are trying to do but you don't see them doing successfully? Yeah. Um, Great, great question. So there's two things there, really, in a way. And one of them is more about the, the, the broad context and environment of campaigns in general. And the other was about very specifically about what we saw as a problem within British politics. Um, so I'll start with that. I mean, essentially, two years ago, British politics was as toxic and divisive as it is today. If, if not, in fact, it possibly felt a lot worse. It was two years after Joe Cox had been murdered, two years after the referendum. And we just felt that there needed to be an organisation working in Parliament, but also outside of it, 
to try and bridge some of the divides and to bring politicians back to some of the core values that they would have gone into politics with. But, uh, the whole cut and thrust of the political system seems to cause a lot of them to lose. More broadly, though, in the world of campaigns, so Jennifer Nadel, who founded Compassion and Politics with, and I had worked together on a number of campaigns for about a, a decade. Uh, and we both came to this shared view that there was an absence of any campaign that was really looking at the core values that we have at the heart of politics, and therefore from that society, economics, culture, and that you could get single issue campaigns, which are obviously essential and very important, but they could get a victory somewhere. And then in another place, there'd be a rollback uh, and you'd have to sort of start again. And um, we thought what we really need to do is look systemically at politics and say, and it, as I said about politicians, what are the values that we want to be at the heart of the political system? What is the narrative? What's the story we want to tell ourselves about Britain? And so that was that small ambition is why we uh, set up Compassion in Politics. And then in terms of the specifics of the word compassion, we might come on to this, but we did that because there's a lot of really good research now into psychology about that's sort of defined what compassion is and how it can be transformative for individuals and for societies more generally. So we also had that as our, um, you know, proof point, really, that this was a properly tested approach to, um, to work to life. And we felt that it was desperately needed in politics as well. Yeah, I was curious about the the choice of phrasing, actually, and compassion. I mean, I think, you know, if you ask a lot of people, it's just the act of being nice about things. <laughs> and in politics, obviously, you know, the job is to reconcile, you know, a, a, an almost sort of insurmountable demand for more money um, for public services, etc., against obviously long-term economic interests sometimes. Um, do you come up against that problem a lot in that people just maybe either have a different definition of it or say, look, you know, obviously as an MP, I'm always trying to make the, the best, most rational decision about everything. But, you know, it's not to say that I'm being incompassionate to say that we have to increase taxes here or, you know, make savings there. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, when we launched, if, if it's helpful, we the two main objections, if, if there, you know, there was lots of support as well, but where we did get any objections was either that it, you know, compassion, oh, that's nice to have, or it's very fluffy, um, sounds a bit woolly. It's not, it's not right for politics, actually. Um, our, I mean, our objection to that is very clear that actually compassion is possibly one of, you know, having compassion in the face of immense suffering and not turning away, not seeking easy answers, not seeking to lay the blame is actually the most courageous and brave act that you can perform. So it's the complete opposite of a nice to have or being fluffy or woolly. Um, and then, yes, exactly, people sort of saying, well, how, given I have to make so many difficult decisions, how is a compassionate approach going to help me? And that's where we can point to the psychology, really, which really does help you sort of identify the decision-making processes that you can go through and how can you bring your values into play? How can you be mindful? How can you understand other people's position? And, and how do you maintain that in, in a system which is very high-pressured, long working hours, all of those sorts of things? And to us, in a way, compassion politics is a cross-party group. And although we advocate certain policy positions, which we see as being representative of compassion as a value. 
more important to us in a way is saying what are the overall goals that you want as if you're a politician or a campaigner what is it that you want you know what's of value to you and then look at the means and, and those sorts of decisions about spending or um how you balance particular interests against one another so it's about getting back to those very core basic values rather than letting yourself get lost in the kind of very combative style of debate that happens in parliament and as well there are just so many problems which maybe we'll come on to so many problems within the political system which remove compassion that even just bringing in a little bit we feel would probably make quite a big difference yeah i mean the way in which you introduced compassion in politics is that there has been an even higher level of toxicity to political debate over the last four years. And I think the obvious reason is that, you know, people have become polarised in this debate around Brexit and the fact that the process itself dragged on for so long. Um, And I suspect that MPs, you know, who were on the receiving end of the opinions of the constituents often felt that they were being pushed into one corner or another and actually that made things worse. Do you you see that improving now that we've, in in sort of two ways, left the EU? Um, Do you see there's an opportunity now to put that behind us? Or do you see the fact that the country now has a, you know, a whole new set of problems on its hands Mm. as a sort of even bigger risk potentially to the, the compassionate values that you're trying to yeah it's really that's it's a really tough one um i think that the toxicity is probably less high profile and i think probably it's less we see it far less in partly because parliament isn't debating brexit so much but also because there's only a maximum number of people allowed in parliament actually i think there's some interesting research to be done about how the new arrangements because of covid have affected the way that parliament behaves but I think we still feel that it is very, the issues are still very much there. So as an example, we very recently did some research looking at the likelihood that Conservative MPs and Labour MPs would vote on the same side on an issue. And it's at its lowest point in the whole of the 21st century. Um, equally, we're working with MPs who are still daily receiving death threats and it, or, or other forms of violent abuse online. Uh, and it's not just related to Brexit, it's related to all sorts of decisions that they're making. Uh, and also everything, you know, they're not, you know, that's nothing related to politics. It's just, you know, something they've said, their looks, their family, a private decision. So I think oh, we're still grappling with those issues. And there's, for us, in our analysis, what we can usefully contribute, there's two big drivers of that. One is, as I say, the setup of the political system. Um, we have a voting system which basically narrows down people's options to two parties, which obviously creates a sense of a combat, a horse race, means a lot of views aren't represented. You have a parliament which is set up, so you have two sides facing one another, shouting one another down. You don't, if you go to any other parliament, basically, it's really not like that. They sit in, yeah. you know, quiet. You would design a, a parliament like that. You you know, it's, it's a, a lot of it is down to spatial design. More, you know, yeah, like well, and it actually, interestingly, deliberately designed now so that it's over capacity when it's full for PMQs. I mean, obviously, it's not at the moment, but that's one of the mm. things that they decided not to expand it because they like the sense of it being an arena. But, I mean, that's terrible working conditions and, and these people are making decisions about that affects all of us. All these kind of things just contribute to us having an incredibly combative political system. And we feel that it's out of touch, it's out of date, and and it is really out of line with 
a, a decision-making procedure that would actually lead to good policies and good politics. So until we reform that, and then the second branch is really the kind of grappling with tech and, and social media and how you combat hate speech on there as well, which is another area that we're working on. Till you deal with those two issues, I think the problems will continue. Brexit unleashed a lot of it, but it's not going to go away. Absolutely. All of the day's work, I guess. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit more around the wider sort of structural stuff of campaigning. Um, obviously, this podcast is aimed as much about sort of political commentary as it is that people are interested in just how non-profits and political parties function and um, how change can be achieved. As someone with like the unique perspective, perhaps, of having set up your own non-profit from scratch, um, what traps do you think people often, you know, f- fall into worrying about when they go about doing so? Do they prioritise sort of like branding, etc., and and linger too much on trying to make their copy one hundred percent perfect on their website? I mean, from your experience, what one bit have have you found you didn't need to spend as much time on, or are you glad you didn't because it didn't matter in the long run? Yeah, um, certainly, I think branding is a really good one. I mean, you've got to, it can't look awful, clearly. And I think you need to be, and you need to make it very simple for you to use on a shoestring. But I think absolutely that is something you can spend a lot of time on. And when we launched, you know, it was very roughly put together by me and, you know, it wasn't professionally done, but it was enough to keep us going. Um, And I think it can be quite tempting to look at all those sorts of exciting things like the name and the text on the website and, um, you've got to get them to a degree right that they're going to change, that you're going to be changing those within a week or so of launching because you just realise that when you put it out there, it's probably not quite right, not quite accurate. Um, I think people often probably don't do enough research into what else is out there. And it's not to say, you know, it's just avoiding duplication and avoiding reinventing the wheel, as people like to say. And I've seen a lot of campaigns launch where you sort of go, hang on a minute, that that these people are already doing really great work and they build the contacts. And it's not to say sometimes multiple voices are incredibly helpful, but have those conversations with people beforehand and make sure. And I think the other thing is that we really learned very quickly was not being too, and it's an ethos we've actually just carried through compassion in politics ever since, is not being too locked into a strategy. So we tried to write down when we started like a three and a five year plan. <laughs> and in, on reflection, that was so unnecessary because you know, you're only starting, you're, you're getting pe- new people involved, people will come up with ideas, you'll find out a lot just by doing the job. And also, I think in general, that's not so appropriate to campaigning these days, 24 hour news cycle, so much going on, so much chaos, you know, yeah. the world that we live in is, is in chaos. And I think you have to be really flexible. Obviously, sure. you've got to keep your, I like to think of it, you you have a very clear strap line of what you do, and you can check back and you always know whether that's something. There's an example given in a book I read once about, you know, how, I mean, it's not, not a great example in terms of maybe our ethos, but Ryanair became so successful in a way because everyone in the company knew what Ryanair was about. You provide no frills travel, and everyone can refer back to that. And I think once you've got that cemented, very clear idea of your compass where you're heading you can work from there you don't necessarily need to have a massively complicated theory of change worked out obviously you do when you're going for funding that's a separate issue but um yeah 
I, I don't know. I think one of the things you spoke about at the beginning, which I noticed quite a lot in progressive campaigns, especially, is there is a temptation to set up a new organisation where one already exists and just, you know, change the strategy 10%. And I can never work out if perhaps that's because the strategy does need changing or whether there's a sort of control factor in it where people just like being at the top of the pile and like the idea that they are in control of a brand and a campaign. Um, I don't know if you had much experience of that mm. as the various campaigns you've worked on. I'm sure a lot of them have, especially, say, with the nuclear disarmament campaign, there must be four or five operating in the, in the UK that are attempting to do roughly the same thing. Is there ever an upside to that? Yeah, so I think I think both have seen it and there can be some upsides. I think, I think I'd add, I think you're absolutely right on some of the causes why that happens. I think I'd add a couple of other things, perhaps, that I've witnessed. One is I... I, partly I feel like, and I obviously, I don't know whether this is a new thing, but, um, or a very modern recent development, but in a very divided political world, I think there's a tendency to, to quite quickly group people into, you know, the right or wrong side, even within the progressive movement mm. and to identify them as part of the group. And then you don't work with them. And then you've got to just, the only option is to go away and set up your own. And, and you know, sometimes that might be justified, but I think it happens more times than it probably is needed. I think you're absolutely right that there's an ego element too, and probably a frustration if you feel like your side is not necessarily winning. You know, there's a probable, it's going to be quite hard to keep that side broadly together and avoid fragmentation. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that on the nuclear side of things so there obviously there are and i was working for icamp but you know there's groups like cmd and others who work on similar issues um and it only really worked um well because we just had regular conversations and knew that our our area of working was quite different cmd focused on much more on british policy change icam was focused on the un and on international and therefore you could complement i feel like the any experience I've had where you've tried to set up an incredibly formal coalition hasn't worked. Where it's much more of a sort of loose, we'll check in very occasionally, but you sort of let go of that sort of need to hold on to power or hold on to your boundary and not step on people's toes. Where, where you can let that go and just say, hey, we're all working towards the same thing. We just need to make sure we're not completely saying totally different things. Yeah. But generally, as long as we're all speaking about this and just amplifying voices, I think that's fine. So the sort of looser group, the occasional WhatsApp chat, I have often found works much better than trying to have a formal set of coalition rules where you're going to check in and sign off everything between each other and write letters yeah. by committee. All of that really doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, that certainly speaks to a lot of experiences I've seen as well. Um, talk, I think you mentioned in there, like, you know, success for a, an organisation which is very values-led. How do you measure the success of compassion in politics? How do you know if you're doing a good job? That's really, yeah, it's something we struggle with on a basically day-to-day -day basis. Um, <laughs> do you not so, have personal KPIs? <laughs> yeah, can you, maybe you should come in and help us with this. Um, you know what, it's, it's really hard, and I think... Um, I, I warned you that I'd come onto this as one of my favorite bugbears, but um, funding is very difficult unless you are very, very quantitative in what you can achieve. 
And the reality is that campaigns aren't like that. You go forwards, you go backwards, you change opinion, which is impossible almost to measure. Um, I mean, obviously you can on a national scale, but, you know, we're talking about, if we're talking about politicians, you know, changing the mood music is not something that's very easy to measure. Um, what we do, I suppose, is we have, and, and I'd recommend this in general for any campaign, is that obviously we've got a couple of very grand goals. So um, one of them is to use some specific protections around socioeconomic rights that don't exist in Britain at the moment, but do exist in many other countries, thanks to the work of the UN. And um, we see that as kind of the goal of what a compassionate Britain would look like. And then we also have a goal in terms of how we change Parliament um, and the outcomes there. But that's not going to be achieved for quite a few years. Um, so we have to have goalposts that we're working towards before then. So I think it's about having those very specific achievable goals that as long as you feel are right in your mind, they're going to build up and eventually lead to that bigger change. That's how you can do it. Uh, and obviously, we have lots of organised, well, you know, lots, I say lots, <laughs> we don't have lots, but we do have organisational goals as well around the usual things like fundraising and number of people involved and supporting us on social media. So you can use those um, to measure progress. The other thing, though, I think that is often undervalued and is much easier if you're uh, a fleet of foot, smaller campaign that is sort of just gut feeling about how you're doing, gut feeling about what's going to be right and what you should get involved with. Because we, you know, compassion and politics are two massive things that we could, every day there's issues that we could pick up and run with, but you just have to check in, as I said, really about that sort of strap line of what you're working on and make that decision based on that and try things and they'll fail and, and not worry too much and not get hung up on that. I mean, I say that in theory, I'm probably pretty awful at them when they do fail. I'm really down about it for a while, but you do, you, you bounce back. But the good thing worry. is you can create new goals to, to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and look back at things you've done and then make them the goals. I mean, that's, yeah, that's absolutely. the brilliance of setting up your own campaign. Um, <laughs> exactly. To reframe <laughs> the debate. <laughs> no, an answer to no one but yourself. I think that's, yeah. That, yeah. I'm curious as to whether you think it's easier to work for a campaign that has like a very clear end goal and an exit strategy, thinking specifically about, say, the Equal Civil Partnerships campaign, where you were fighting for a piece of legislation or a change to that legislation. And once you, you know, you achieved it, you knew the job was done. Or is it easier to have a campaign where you can adapt to the, to the current situation and where you've got some values that are driving you, but in fact, you've got like a much wider window of opportunity for, mm. for making change i think it does depend again on how long term that goal is so i think mm. with the equal civil partnerships campaign we felt like when i was there um i think when i was there we were sort of in our heads and feeling like it was a two-year campaign and i think it roughly was actually from that point yeah. um so that was fine because you could kind of see that that was going to happen you, you you sort of committed to that 24 months Whereas with compassion in politics, where or we we know some of the big changes we want aren't going to happen in that mm. time frame, um, you've got to have those smaller things to to work on alongside it. I think I would say from a just from a strategic perspective, it does again. It does depend on the type of campaign that you want to run, but having lots of branches to what you're doing can obviously slap energy and resources and time. But there's lots of 
fantastic things that come from that, like the contacts that you meet, the, the fact that volunteers will come forward because they're interested in a specific piece of work that you're doing. Funders are more interested because it's much easier to convince them if you've got three or four items on a menu rather than just we want equal civil partnerships. Um, and, and, and through that, you kind of generate energy and, and size. So it very much just depends on the sort of strategy and the tactics of the campaign, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's a case of trying to find a balance where your objectives aren't so distant that you're literally existing for existence sake, mm. which again can be a pitfall that some organisations can fall into in that they are sometimes creating campaigns or initiatives just for the sake of getting some petition signatures and some money in so that they can spend another sort of six months, you know, keeping people on the payroll. Yeah, and I, I think that is something you really have to, you've got to try and be aware of and kind of be open to the idea that maybe one day your campaign isn't going to be yeah it's either it's it's either you've got to be completely sort of reformed or you or it's not needed which is obviously in a way a a brilliant place to reach sometimes it's easy to hand over your organization to someone else and let them make that decision i think yeah i'm curious to see in that context what happens um, with the reform uk party because not only has the brexit party sort of rebranded and changed its vision slightly but it's it's changed the length of time in which it has to operate the brexit party was there to to see through a very specific goal and it didn't necessarily need like a huge structure around it It didn't need top level tech etc it had a very clear message many would argue that it succeeded especially in eu elections last year um and then not really having to do too much afterwards and now it's sort of repurposed with this goal of finding some sort of common political ground among its members which you know, from from what we've seen of of UKIP and the Brexit Party previously, tends to be a sort of more libertarian approach to to politics. But whether that is sustainable, when you know you haven't got the structure underneath you, is yet to be seen. I yes, I think I think that's a really astute comment, and in particular, um, I mean, I think Farage is your kind of <laughs> he's a model of a particular style of campaign, which can be very you know can it can be really effective if basically mm. your goal is to see over the line um, to spot where the zeitgeist is going and, and essentially help to see it over the line. I think, you know, yeah. he is very good at that, um, no doubt. He's very he's got his finger on the pulse of sort of where a certain group of public opinion is. If, However, you want to do the work to be the person who's steering it from a different perspective, then there's, you've got to be in it for a lot longer and face a long period of probably not having this anywhere like the level of popularity you want, but you could still Absolutely. see it as a stepping stone, hopefully. And, you know, other organisations will then come in and sweep you along. I think that's also one of the things that I've learned from working with Compassion Politics and other campaigns is that you've got to be willing to see it through a very barren period because often campaigns, I think they kind of do go in this, like, there's often an issue which launches them um, because it's in the public eye and suddenly there's lots of interest and people want to fund it and people want to get involved and then it will go quiet because the news cycle is like that it's so fickle and you and then you have to try and manufacture the interest again uh, and it's being willing to sort of while it's in that trough yeah to, yeah. to just keep doing the work keep meeting people raising the agenda getting news items so that you can at least keep people aware of what you're doing and then get yeah. ready for another push 
I can imagine working for an electoral reform organization is probably the sort of peak of that experience in which you probably experience a massive, massive surge in interest like the week after the election. And then you have to try and sustain um, people's interest for the the next three or four years afterwards, um, Mm. even though there's no sort of real opportunity to put um, electoral reform on the agenda. It's it's the government that's won isn't interested. Yeah. And it's quite funny that it's hard to be event has taken After place event, people go, oh, oh, we should have done that differently <laughs> yeah. yeah just i guess it's like party membership must be it must be very much the mm. same thing you see the surge in people joining after they realize the consequences of not doing so but yeah and it's campaigning i guess Definitely. matt it's been a fantastic chat um, one question i wanted to ask you at the end was if there was a single book or a podcast other than this one obviously that you could recommend to people who are getting started in campaigning or might be interested in setting up a, a charity or non-profit is there anything specific you would recommend i think in terms of campaigning i was thinking before and it's not a specifically a campaigning book it's also one that is a bit of a cliche now but um George Lakoff's um, Don't Think of an Elephant book was, I read quite a few years ago, and it had a really big impact on me for two reasons. One was just the eye-opener of, you know, the the importance of framing and um, narrative and all of that. But then it sort of obviously fed into my long, wider thinking, which kind of led into compassion and politics, which was about how metaphors and narrative and so forth, you can have a metaphor that is about the economy but people will adopt it and use it to apply it to all walks of life so um they'll think about other people through that lens i'll think about politics and so on that led me into compassionate politics it's not a specific it might not work for everyone but it's also just a fascinating and really important book for anyone who's um interested in particularly in comms and um how you tell a story and if I was big enough, we would have an Amazon affiliate link in the description. But for now, I think people have to find their own way to that. Yeah, yeah. Like a memorable name. Very good yeah. marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us um, on this as yet unnamed podcast. I'd imagine it'll be, it'll end up being called something like, you know, Conversations and Campaigning when you go to find it on Spotify. Um, but in any case, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Um, we'll hopefully have you on again soon because I think you've got more than the experiences that you shared with us today to to sort of, um, bless the world with. But until then, thanks and uh, see you soon. Thank you, Alex. Thanks very much. Cheers. Mm-hmm.